October 13th. And now, as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament today, we'll be looking into the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We'll see that along with persecutions on the outside, the church was facing problems on the inside. Some people were suffering great trials for their faith. Others had quit working and were idlers. Still others were harboring the wrong idea that they were experiencing the day of the Lord. Paul wrote this letter to encourage the suffering, enlighten the confused, and warn the careless. In times of trial, the essential thing is your faith. God will see you through, so trust His promises. Remember that others are watching you, and you can encourage them. You may be tempted to fight back, but leave that to the Lord. The lost will be eternally separated from God's glory, while the saved will bring glory to the Lord. Meanwhile, be sure that God is glorified by your life today. And with that, let's begin our reading now in the New Testament. October 13th, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It is written to the church in Thessalonica, You who belong to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Dear brothers and sisters, we always thank God for you, as is right, for we are thankful that your faith is flourishing and that you are all growing in love for each other. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. But God will use this persecution to show His justice, for He will make you worthy of His kingdom for which you are suffering, and in His justice He will punish those who persecute you, and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from His glorious power when He comes to receive glory and praise from His holy people. And you will be among those praising Him on that day, for you believed what we testified about Him. And so we keep on praying for you, that our God will make you worthy of the life to which He called you. And we pray that God, by His power, will fulfill all your good intentions and faithful deeds. Then everyone will give honor to the name of our Lord Jesus because of you, and you will be honored along with Him. This is all made possible because of the undeserved favor of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question is, on what possible grounds could God ever say to you, you are just, when in fact you are not just? Again, how can an unjust person be justified? Well, when we look at imputation, the concept of imputation 
is found frequently in the New Testament with the imagery like the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he take away the sin of the world? How does the Lamb do it in the Old Testament? What's the symbolism? The priest puts his hands on the Lamb. Why? He's transferring symbolically the sins of the people to the animal that is to be sacrificed or to the scapegoat who's to go out into the wilderness, and we'll look at that again later on. Jesus is said to bear our sins. He takes upon himself the sins of the world. The language there is a language of a quantitative act of transfer, where the, the weight of guilt that belongs here is taken from this man and given to somebody else. So that what happens is that God, in Christ, Christ willingly takes upon himself all of this. So that before God, once the sin has been imputed to him, and again, we'll talk more about what this means when we examine the curse motif in the New Testament. But now, in the sight of God, God looks at Christ, and what does he see? Justice. He sees a mass of sinfulness because the sin of now has been transferred to Jesus. This is elementary. I don't want to be insulting your intelligence, but this is, we've got to get this into our bloodstream. The sin is transferred or imputed to Jesus. Now, if that happened, and that's all that happened, the single transfer, the one-dimensional transaction, you would never be justified. If Jesus took all of my sins that I've ever committed on his back and took the punishment for me, that would not get me into the kingdom of God. All that would do would be keep me out of hell. I would still not be just. I would be innocent, if you will, but still not just in a positive sense. I have no righteousness of which to speak. And remember, it's not simply that the innocence that gets me into the kingdom of God, it's righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never get in to the kingdom of God. And so we could talk about, maybe I'm not guilty of anything, but I haven't done anything. I haven't merited anything that, were, that whereby uh, uh, justice would give a reward. So the point is that there is a double transfer. Not only is the sin of man imputed to Christ, but what happens to the righteousness of Christ? The sin is transferred to Jesus. The righteousness of Christ is transferred to us, to our account, so that in God's sight, this circle is now clean. So that God, when he declares me just, 
is not lying. Incidentally, Rome has trouble with this. Rome calls this concept, the Protestant concept, a legal fiction. And they recoil from it because they sense that in the Protestant view of imputation, that somehow this concept casts a shadow on the integrity of God because God is now declaring people just who are not just. The response of the reformers was, if the imputation were fictional, then when God declared us just, it would be a legal fiction. It would be a lie. And that would be a blemish on the character of God. But the point of the gospel is that the imputation is real. That God really laid my sins on Christ. And not only that, God really transferred the, the righteousness of Christ to me. And that there is a real union for those who are in Christ. Psalm 83, verses 1 through 18. We'll see as we read here that Asaph was perplexed. Israel was in danger. But God was silent and inactive. The nations were noisily forming a military confederacy against the Jews. But God was speechless and seemingly doing nothing. The enemy wanted to destroy the nation and take the land, and apparently God was going to let them do it. So Asaph prayed and reminded God of what he did to Israel's enemies during the days of the judges. Then he shifted from history to nature and asked God to send a storm to wipe them out. Asaph had a purpose in mind, not just the safety of Israel, but the glory of the Lord. Some of the enemy soldiers might even trust in the God of Israel. It was not important that Israel's name be preserved, but it was important that God's name be glorified. When it seems that God is saying and doing nothing, hey, rest assured that He is working on your behalf. He is not as noisy as the enemy, the world, but He is more powerful, infinitely more powerful, and He will win. That means you win. Psalm 83, verses 1 through 18. A Psalm of Asaph, a song. Oh God, don't sit idly by, silent and inactive. Don't you hear the tumult of your enemies? Don't you see what your arrogant enemies are doing? They devise crafty schemes against your people, laying plans against your precious ones. Come, they say, let us wipe out Israel as a nation. We will destroy the very memory of its existence. This was their unanimous decision. They signed a treaty as allies against you, these Edomites and Ishmaelites, Moabites and Hagrites, Gebelites, Ammonites, and Amalekites, and people from Philistia and Tyre. Assyria has joined them too, and is allied with the descendants of Lot. Do to them as you did to the Midianites, or as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the Kishon River. They were destroyed at Endor, and their decaying corpses fertilized the soil. Let their mighty nobles die as Oreb and Zeb did. Let all their princes die, like Zeba and Zalmunna, for they said, 
Let us seize for our own use these pasture lands of God. Oh, my God, blow them away like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As a fire roars through a forest, and as a flame sets mountains ablaze, chase them with your fierce storms, terrify them with your tempests, utterly disgrace them, until they submit to your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and terrified forever. Make them failures in everything they do, until they learn that you alone are called the Lord, that you alone are the Most High, supreme over all the earth. Proverbs 25, verses 11 through 14. Timely advice is as lovely as golden apples in a silver basket. Valid criticism is as treasured by the one who heeds it as jewelry made from finest gold. Faithful messengers are as refreshing as snow in the heat of summer. They revive the spirit of their employer. A person who doesn't give a promised gift is like clouds and wind that don't bring rain. Proverbs 25, verses 11-14